Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. I've got 10 minutes until 8, and I guarantee you I'm not going to stop at 8. So if you need to leave, you get up and go. But I prepared this sermon. I worked hard on it. I'm going to deliver the whole thing. I'm not going to be stuck for 10 minutes, okay? If you feel you've got to go, go. I won't, I won't go way over, but I want, you, I, want, I want to deliver it all. I'm not going to cut it short. We're talking about a letter that was written to a dead church. Did you notice that in the reading of it? The criticism that he made to the church at Sardis was that it was dead. We don't know much about the town of Sardis, and so we'll not spend any time at all in dealing with the background of the city. It was from this city that we get the famous King Croesus, who was an extremely wealthy man. And it appears that this wealth was not only of the king, but the entire city, and carried over into the church. This church didn't have financial problems. It was well off. Most churches in today's society have financial troubles, but not because the people are poor. It's because the people have not committed themselves in the pocketbook as they have otherwise. We're not going to deal with finances at all tonight. (coughs) I am one person, at least, that does not believe that a preacher needs to do a lot of talking about the financing of the affairs of the church. For I believe when the heart is right, the pocketbook will be right. And people will give according to the way that the Lord has blessed them. If you don't have, you don't give. If you have little, you give little. If you have much, you're obligated by the scripture to give accordingly. And so if one's heart is right, one's financial contribution to the affairs of the church will correspondingly fit into place. Although there are times we need to comment upon that just to let the church know what the situation is. But that's not the point of this message, nor perhaps any message that I might preach normally. But Satan will take the advantage of using our finances in other affairs. It is not difficult for us to use the money that we have to do the other things in our lives that we feel that we would like to have or would like to do. And so we're lulled into complacency when it comes to the affairs of the church. Not only are we lulled into complacency as far as finances are concerned, but we're lulled into complacency as far as our spiritual life is concerned. Most people in most churches are not very spiritual. I think we saw some opposites to that this morning. We saw some opposites to it this evening. There are some people who are spiritual. And we ought to praise God for those who are because I think they probably carry the rest of us along a bit and give us a little support and maybe make us more spiritual. But for the most part, churches in today's world are not very spiritual. And if we could simply use the statistics of the number of baptisms, which would correspond to those who are being saved in 
our churches today, you will discover, if you would have the statistics that I have, that there aren't very many churches baptizing very many people. We baptized five people in the last four and a half months or some such thing since I've been here. This is wonderful and good. But how many will we have baptized when a year has gone by? And I have watched the statistics of Baptist churches and others as well, but I have uh, access to the, to the statistics of the Baptist churches, and I see church after church after church that do not report a single baptism. This is a tragedy when this is our purpose, is to win people to the Lord, and the baptisms are the statistics that, that indicate the spiritual life of the church and that we're reaching out in the community and winning people to the Lord. Our purpose as a church is to bring ourselves and the community face to face with Jesus Christ. That's what our purpose is. Now, we do not win people to the Lord. We simply are instruments in the hand of the Lord. All we are required to do and expected to do by the Lord is give our testimony, state our beliefs, offer the opportunities. It is the Lord that gives the increase. But we're the instruments. You need not worry that if you go to speak to someone as I did just this afternoon in this community, that he did not accept the Lord. That doesn't concern me that much. Because I expect the little seed that the Lord planted in that uh, individual's life by my comments will be used. I may have planted Somebody else may water, but it will be the Lord that will give the increase. All right, this is our responsibility. We must be cautious that we do not settle down into ritual, settle down into formality, but we must be a church that is alive, and our demonstration of our life is in the fruits that we bear. Now, the church at Sardis, the Lord said, was dead. There is nothing in this letter to commend the Church of Sardis for anything. It was a criticism of their life. He said, you have a name, but you're alive, but you're dead. No works to be commended. Now, this church has a name. I don't know what the name of this church is in this community. Maybe you know. But I'll tell you this. This church has a name for it. You are described as a church body of being something. It may very well be that this community has said, you are alive. There's a wonderful fellowship going on up there. There's a lot of activity. And the Lord might say, that's fine, but you did. Oh, the community might say, that's a terrible church. It's dead. It has a reputation in the community. And it's important that we be sure that we fairly represent our reputation. 
And if we don't like our reputation, then it's up to us to change our reputation. But in the long run, it matters little what people think of us. It matters, however, very definitely what the Lord thinks of us. And the Lord thought of this church, I don't agree with your reputation. Because the reputation of Sardis was that they were alive, and the Lord said, you're not, you're dead. You also have a reputation as an individual. If I would go up and down the road and stop in non-church members' houses of this community and say, what do you think of so-and-so, there probably would be given to me an opinion of everyone else. What would I be given? What is your reputation as a Christian in the community? Well, Sardis was well thought of. But God said, you're dead. Let me ask this question. Whose church is this? You can say, it's my church. That's my church. That's a good answer. You ought to think of this as your church. Because it is your church. You've put your heart and soul in this church. Therefore, because it's your church, it ought to be the best church that you can help make it be. But it's not your church. And I'm not contradicting myself in saying it is and then telling you it's not. Many pastors are guilty of saying, my church. Well, I say this is my church. I'm the pastor. Well, let me tell you. It's the Lord's church. It's not yours. It's not mine. And this church has been dedicated by the people of this community who are members of this body to the Lord's service. And therefore we have a responsibility to the Lord as to what goes on here. And if the Lord would say you're a dead church, then it's time for us to be reevaluating ourselves to see just really what we are. All right. Now, let's, let's see what he says. He says, you are dead. And then in verse 2, he wants us to be watchful. He said, be watchful and strengthen that which remains. Now, quickly we can see that it is not completely dead because he recognizes there's something left that's still alive. It's not totally dead. It's just on the way to the grave. And so the Lord is saying, watch and strengthen that which remains. The word watchful is a very important word. It means be awake. Be awake. When Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, he told his disciples to wait there a short distance away and watch with him while he prayed. And he went on and prayed and he came back and they were asleep. And he said, could you not watch? problem of today's church for the most part the problem of Sardis is that the church has fallen asleep at the controls 
like a train going down the track. And at the controls is supposed to be the engineer who will look at the signals along the track and respond accordingly and put on the brakes or increase speed. And only as he follows the signals can he safely guide that train down the track. But when he ignores the signals, there's going to be disaster ahead, such as was in that train wreck of some weeks ago that we've heard about. The church is responsible for being keenly aware and awake to the conditions of the track and the signals that the Lord gives, and do that which he will tell us to do. Be watchful, he says, and he's expecting something of us. He's expecting our love. We talked about that this morning. He's expecting our loyalty. He's expecting our service. He wants something out of us. We need to be awake. Point number two. He talks about strengthening that which remains. Now, when you talk about strengthening something, you recognize that there are some weaknesses that have got to be overcome. That's the only reason you strengthen something. It's not strong enough as it is. He's saying to this church, put some support in there and show it up for it's about to fall down. So he wants us, as we look at our church, his church, to show up and strengthen those things that need strengthening. We need to be strong in doctrine. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it and stand firm on his word. We need to shore up our weaknesses so that we are strong. Then he says to remember, sometimes we don't like to remember. He didn't say remember how you used to be. Did you notice that? He didn't say remember the way it used to be. He is said in verse 3, remember what you have received and heard. Remember what the Lord has told you. That's why when we have communion, the Lord's Supper, he told us to do this in remembrance of him, to remember what we have received. The very thing that many of you talked about tonight in your testimony, you were saying, I remember what I received from the Lord. I remember what he did for me. We need to remember that. Sometimes we forget it what the Lord has done with us. And then he says, hold fast. Or if you would read it in the Living Bible, you would find it says, hold firmly to your faith. Hold firmly to your faith. A little girl who was a part of the Salvation Army in London, England, story goes, went to visit in an apartment of a, to a young man who was not a Christian, but he was very, very ill and was on death's bed. His family was not Christian. She was ready to knock on the door because she felt compelled of the Lord and she was led of the Lord to go visit. As she got ready to knock, she heard the voice of the father inside saying to his very ill son, hold on, son hold on. And she heard the son say, but I have nothing to hold on to. This is the fact of life, 
for those who do not know Jesus Christ. They don't have anything to hold on to. We've got it. Let's hold on to it, but let's share it. But others might be able to hold on to the very thing that we have. And then he gives another word immediately there in the third verse. It's the word repent. If you have noticed, I believe in all of the, the messages to these churches so far that we have read, the word repent has been given to the church time and time and time again. It seems strange that he ought to, that he has to ask us as his own people to repent. But we need to repent daily. Because none of us are faultless, none of us are sinless. But if we won't, he says, if you will not watch, then I will come unto you as a thief in the night. This is talking about the rapture of the church uh, in, in one sense of the word. But I can tell you this, to the non-Christian, it's, uh, it's talking about something else. If a, if a non-Christian will not repent of his sins and accept Jesus Christ, the day is going to come when the Lord is going to take him out of this world. And I said to a person this afternoon, you're not getting any younger. So I know. The day's coming. He'll come as a thief in the night. And the question is, are we prepared for his coming? Let me ask you this as a person, as an individual. If the Lord came tonight, to, act, to receive his church out of this world, would you still be sitting here after most of us left? Because you're not a part of his body. You're not a part of his church. You're not saved. Well, it's possible, I suppose, all of us, uh, maybe this evening are, that we must consider that question. But verse 4 is very encouraging to me. He says, even in Sardis, there are a few people that have not defiled their garments. Sometimes the church gets very low and would be considered a dead church, as this one was described, and I have been in many of those. But even in the midst of those that are dead, there are those that are faithful. There were some people, even in the Sardis church, that remained faithful. In one of our American refugee camps, I was set up to receive those that had been abused and persecuted. They would come up to the little building, or the, many times the tents, to receive medical treatment or food. In this particular incident, a young lady very, very poorly dressed because of her abuse that she had undergone, came to the tent to receive some medical attention in our refugee camp. And the nurse saw that she had been beaten, very badly abused. And she asked the girl what her problem was. And she said, I am bearing the cross of Christ. 
The nurse didn't understand. But the girl undressed in order to be treated. And on her back, the nurse saw a very badly infested sore in the shape of a cross. And the girl said, they said to me, is it Mohammed or Christ? And she said, I see Christ. And they branded me with an iron cross. I bear his cross. But she ended her statement by saying, but someday I'll be glad. We don't have the cross branded on our back. But we have our cross to bear, and I thought of this, Bill, when you were giving your testimony. That's what you were saying was so fitting so well into this point that I wanted to make. We have our crosses. You have yours, and I have mine, and we may never know what that cross is. And we may have difficulties in this life, and it'll get heavy and, and hard to bear, and we wonder at times if we can stand up under it. But we can say like this girl said, Someday I'll be glad. There's a call to faithfulness in the midst of persecution, in the midst of ungodliness, in the midst of people laughing at us, in the midst of families who don't know the, the Christ that we know, in the midst of all our tribulations and trials and problems. We can bear the cross because he first bore it for us. And someday I'll be glad. Verse 5, he says, he that overcometh. Are you an overcomer or a succumber? I'm sure you will be an overcomer. He that overcomes, he said, will be clothed in a white robe. That white robe could indicate four things. Well, before I tell you what those four things are, I want to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want to describe to you what an overcomer is out of Paul's writings to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. I think you ought to write these words of these verses down uh, so you know where to turn to them. You ought to make this something that you can get a hold of at any time. 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9 ought to be words that you will always remember. This is an overcomer. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. That's an overcomer. Those who overcome, the Lord said, will be clothed in a white robe. Four things that means. Number one, it's talking about a festivity. There is a day coming when we will go to a banquet in heaven. And in order to enter that banquet hall, you have to have on a white robe. And the only way you can have on the white robe is your sins have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And when that has taken place, he'll give you a white robe. Secondly, 
It refers to victory. The overcomer is a victorious person, and he will be clothed in the robe of victory, which is a white robe. Thirdly, it symbolizes purity. Your sins have been washed away. You have been cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. You have been made pure. You've been made white by that which Jesus Christ did. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And fourth, it means that you're part of the resurrection of the church, the rapture of the church, for the church will be called forth out of this world is the next big thing that's going to happen. And when it is, your body is changed, it's transformed into a body like the Lord, you will, you will be given a white robe. And so we have four meanings that we can place on the overcomer. One who will enjoy the festivities of heaven, one who testifies of victory and of purity and of the resurrected body. Now, let's conclude with the statement that he makes about not blotting out the name out of the book of life but in the midst of the fifth verse. I want you to be sure you understand this fifth verse. For many people don't. Many people take this verse to mean, see there, once you're saved, you can be lost because the Lord's going to blot out your name if such and such things don't happen. That's a mistake in understanding as to what this verse says. Let me give it to you now. You've got to understand the terms in which it was being written. In that day and time, when a person's name, or when a person was born, his name was put on the record in the courthouse. His name was written down. He was born. The record was made. When he died, they erased his name out or blotted it out. So he came on the scene and was given recognition, and when he died, he was taken totally out of the picture. That was the way they did it at that time. And this is the terminology in which the scripture is being written here. When a person is born, I believe very firmly that his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life because a child, until he reaches an age where he can actually make a decision for himself, is God's child without question. Whatever that age might be, we can't say. I, I really think that the name will stay there, at least in the terminology given here, until physical death, at which time the, this, the person has had plenty of opportunity to allow his name to be a permanent mark on the book of life. And if you will not accept the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be blotted out. What does your record show? Will you become a permanent record in heaven? Or will someday your name be blotted out? The Lord guarantees us something. He guarantees you and me that we will never die. He wrote that guarantee with his own blood. Someday, I'll be glad. Will you? Shall we pray?
Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.